From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, December 20th. I'm Marco Werman. The media spotlight remains on Newtown, Connecticut, almost a week since last Friday's horrific school shooting. We'll explore the notion that too much media coverage of such tragedies can encourage copycat attacks. Plus, later in the program, a push to train more doctors in Ethiopia. I don't think we will change this country by, uh, you know, waiting until we get something perfect to start something. It cannot be perfect. We have to start with what we have. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This has been a week of almost nonstop vigils, wakes, and funerals in Newtown, Connecticut, and nonstop media coverage, too, following last Friday's horrific shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Some Newtown residents are growing increasingly impatient, even angry, with the intrusive media presence. We were reminded of that when we saw a provocative article on the Atlantic website. It's titled, The Media Needs to Stop Inspiring Copycat Murders, Here's How. It's by Zainab Tufekshi, who joins us regularly on the program to talk about the intersection of politics and technology. Tufekshi is a visiting scholar at Princeton University Center for Information Technology Policy, although today she's in Istanbul. There are many problems with the way we're covering this. The first one is the fact that this is a huge pressure on the families, on the survivors, on the town. At a time, the last thing they need is this kind of sort of pushy reporting. And I think this kind of level of coverage descending on the town right at that moment of you know, very heavy grief is not just not the best thing. In fact, I've been getting emails from people in other towns that have gone through this. I've gotten an email from someone who survived the Columbine shooting saying that the media pressure in the days following the shooting made it much more traumatic and worse for them. So they were feeling that that aspect of media coverage is harmful to the people who are survivors. Also, the spectacle of the media coverage itself may be helping inspire the next troubled youngster. How so? The way it's reported is very detailed, very graphic. Here's the gun that was used. Here's the bulletproof vest. The killer first went there. You know, we show so much. There's this intense interest in the words of the killer, in the last days of the killer, what he did, what he said, what did he play with, what was the video game, what was this. This kind of spectacle of attention can be morbidly attractive to a troubled youngster. And I think the coverage method of this just filling every minute available with the details of the killer and his actions and the type of gun and the type of bullet is not helping dampen the copycat effects, which is what we should be thinking about. I mean, you do argue, though, Zainab, that the media does restrain itself uh, from time to time. For instance, in the case of high-profile kidnappings, I think of uh, Richard Engel from uh, NBC, who was kidnapped in Syria, and also by following careful guidelines on reporting suicide. So why isn't that happening with these mass shootings? 
I think we haven't had the conversation yet, and I think that's why it's important to try to consider this. I think there are a lot of cases that the media can and does know that you know there are best practices, and it, as you point out, it follows it for teen suicide, which is very important. When it reports on teen suicides, it's rarely very explicit. The method's not mentioned. Details are not mentioned. Mental health issues are highlighted, and that's a good thing. And when Richard Engel was kidnapped, the media, everybody knew about it, and they sat on it for many, many days because that just makes it harder to get the journalists back alive. I'm saying let's bring the same ethic and let's bring the same guidelines and adapt them to these mass killings. I'm not saying let's not report them. Of course not. I'm not saying you know the public has no right to know. No, the public does have a right to know. But there's no need to do it in this particular way of the breathless spectacle. But are you convinced in this day and age when social media demand new information every millisecond that that sort of strategy is going to work? Look at the Richard Engel case. It happened in the world of social media too. In fact, it did kind of leak onto social media. But it's still a world in which mainstream media plays a key role. And mainstream media gets its information from law enforcement. So law enforcement probably can be careful about what kind of information they release to who. Richard Engel from NBC, the reporter yes. kidnapped. Yeah. And there can be a difference. I'm not saying that the information will be unfindable. Maybe some of it will leak, and maybe it will be on this website or that website. But there's a huge difference between the information just being out there, findable, if you really, really search for it, and it being broadcast and pushed onto the public sphere with the kind of intensity we're seeing. You're in a very different culture right now there in Turkey, Zainab. But really, how far away are you from the portrayals of violence that Hollywood and the rest of America produce? You know, the movie posters of gunmen we plaster on subway walls, the sniper video games our kids are glued to for hours on end. But does that casual glorification of violence feel universal? It does feel increasingly universal. It does feel that increasingly... Uh, in a lot of portrayals of violence, it's just flicked off as something that cool people do, and it's something insignificant. Its effects are never portrayed fully. So that's clearly part of the picture, and that culture is obviously more and more pervasive. Zainab Tufekshiye, visiting scholar at Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy. She was speaking with us from Istanbul. That culture of violence is one of the areas President Obama has said should be addressed in the wake of the Newtown killings. But he's only mentioned that in passing as part of his larger push for new gun control proposals. America's evolving reaction to the tragedy in Newtown is being followed all over the globe. Laure Mandeville is covering it from Washington for the French daily Le Figaro. What struck me, of course, is the level of compassion and mobilization of the society and also the president, I think, was extremely uh, emotional in the way he reacted. And uh, I think he managed to find the words, you know, to give some support and some comfort to the people when he went uh, to Newton on, on Sunday. Also, of course, the immediate uh, debate which started about guns on different levels. I mean, it seems that, you know, what would seem absolutely obvious in Europe, you know, that let's immediately control these guns or forbid, uh, ban them, is not possible here. So it's a different kind of debate, of course, you know, sort of always mentioning the Second Amendment as the uh, foundation of the American society, but at the same time, this new anti-gun coalition sort of emerging timidly and slowly to try to uh, tackle the, the question. But we had this 
emotion before, uh, during the summer when the aurora uh, rampaged. I mean, it seems that there is uh, emotion mobilization and then people forget and go back to their uh, errands and, and the same kind of, of politics on guns. So we hope, I hope, that it's going to be different this time. Now, we should point out too, Law, that you were in Beslan in Russia after terrorists took over a school with more than 1,000 hostages, and that ended in the deaths of more than 300 people three days later, more than half children. Talk about your experience covering the aftermath of that attack and what Vladimir Putin's government's response was when that happened. Yeah, it was actually, uh, I would say, the most difficult type of coverage that I've ever had, although I was in, in very difficult zones in the Soviet Union, but covering the aftermath of Bestline was absolutely horrible as a journalist because we, I had to face the pain and, and circumstances of this terrible attack. And uh, at the time, what was the most uh, horrifying uh, reality was, you know, in fact, the response of the government, which was not at all compassionate. And, and the obsession of, of the central power of the Putin's team was to cover up the whole thing to, to prevent journalists from uh, getting the facts and uh, establishing a sort of a wall around the whole story. And uh, it's much later that we were able to, to go and talk to the people. And I, I actually ended up living in a family which had lost their daughter because this horrible story happened on the first day of school. So a lot of parents were actually present in the school in Beslan and I was staying with the grandparents of a mother who was about 22, I think, and she was at the school with her, both her girl, who was seven, and, and the little boy, who was five, so they lost the three of them. Mm. And I, I spent five days with them just uh, grieving and trying to come up with some appeasement uh, because we couldn't find any explanation, of, of course, for such a tragedy. Now, I know you haven't been covering the Newtown massacre from the site for Le Figaro, although you've uh, written about it in the past few days. Like Beslan in Russia, there's been some kind of anxious truth-digging as to what actually happened there. How have you discussed the event in Newtown with friends and acquaintances in Washington this past week? We've talked about it, and uh, people are horrified, I think, and uh, there is really an empathy, I think, a communion with these parents. And at the same time, some kind of, of feeling of uh, total impotence, that uh, nobody is able to really act, and uh, waiting for uh, politicians to do it, I think. Reporter Laure Mandeville with the French Daily Le Figaro, speaking with us from Washington. Thank you. Thank you. It can be really odd coming across an old audio recording of yourself. Your voice may sound weird. It may recall a potentially embarrassing moment. But it can also turn out to be a great trip back in time. Curators at the Museum of London recently made that kind of audio discovery and just in time for the holidays. The world's Clark Boyd has more. Let me take you back to the turn of the century. And I mean the turn of the last century, the early 1900s. Cromwell Wall, his wife Minnie, and their family lived in North London. Christmas was a time for family gatherings, as Wall's grandson Oliver recalls. I can remember the uh, occasions, uh, always at Christmas, uh, and we always had big parties and singing around the piano with Grandpa playing, and uh, and then he used to take us around marching. Grandpa Wall, the story goes, could often be seen pushing a baby stroller. But often it didn't contain one of Wall's nine children. Instead, Wall used it to cart around the latest in audio recording technology. 
a phonograph, and some wax cylinders. Wall liked to record the family's holiday happenings. What's oh, my dear parents? Here we are again, another Christmas, 1904. Yes, you heard right. That was recorded in 1904. A number of Wall's recordings survived the years and made their way to the Museum of London. Curator Julia Hofbrand helped unearth them earlier this year. The hairs on my arms stood on end. It was fantastic. We had an idea of what was on the recordings because Cromwell had written very full descriptions on the cylinder boxes. It was really like a window opening into the past. For curators, the find was incredible. First of all, it's rare for wax cylinders like this to survive intact for so long. Second, such devices were mostly used at the time by offices, for dictation and the like, not by individuals to record their funniest home audio. So, for historians and curators, hearing Wall's son Leslie singing Christmas songs is, well, solid gold. After curators found the cylinders earlier this year, they cleaned them very carefully. Then they made digital versions and cleaned the sound up a bit. Finally, the Museum of London notified the Wall family, and in October, they heard the recordings for the first time. Christmas 1912. Dear Grandma and Grandpa. Cromwell Wall's niece Daphne says it brought back fond memories of him. He used to dress up as Father Christmas, and there's some photographs I've got of of a windmill that he actually made one year when they put presents in. There's a great deal of excitement. Museum officials say that 24 of Cromwell Wall's recordings survive. They describe the sound quality as outstanding. Well, yeah, considering they're 100 years old. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. Uh, It's still great stuff. We've got a few of Cromwell Wall's holiday recordings and a picture of the family at theworld.org. Still ahead on the program, we take a ride on the Montreal Eagle Hoax Express on PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Many countries in Africa face a serious shortage of doctors. Until recently, Ethiopia had just one physician for every 100,000 people. The country now has an ambitious plan to address the problem, but as the world's Anders Kelto reports, the solution may come at a cost. The pediatrics wing of St. Paul's Hospital in Addis Ababa is a busy place. Nervous parents move in and out, waiting for their kids to be seen. There aren't a lot of doctors here, but there's one group of people that seems to be everywhere. Young, white-coated medical students. They interview patients as part of their training. (laughs) Ethiopia's solution to its doctor shortage is simple. Produce a lot more doctors. This year, the government opened 13 new medical schools. That more than doubled the number in the country. They've also been increasing enrollment at existing schools. This year, for the first time, we enrolled 3,100 medical students, which is almost tenfold compared to what we used to enroll five, six years ago. That's Dr. Tedros Adhanam, Ethiopia's foreign minister, who until recently served as minister of health. He says Ethiopia's severe physician shortage is one of the country's most pressing concerns. 
Many doctors leave Ethiopia for higher-paying jobs overseas, and those who stay tend to work in the cities and in the private sector. That means that 85% of Ethiopians who live in rural villages may never see a doctor. Tedros says the government's solution is to flood the country with new physicians. So deliberately overproducing, even if you lose 100 or 200, everybody doesn't migrate. But some say this huge increase in the quantity of doctors is compromising quality. Deme Endelu is a medical student at St. Paul's. He says the sharp increase in enrollment has made it difficult to learn. There is a scarcity of resources. We don't have books, computer labs, um, lecturers. Every time the number of students increases, all these things become worse. Deme says he often can't complete assignments because all of the books and computers are in use. He had to share a cadaver with 30 peers, and he often interviews patients who have already seen 10 or 15 other medical students. When you uh, try to work with them, they are really fed up with the students going to them and asking them the same question again and again. But perhaps the biggest problem at Ethiopian medical schools is a shortage of instructors. There are very few incentives for senior doctors to teach at medical schools. That means young doctors like Daniel Hailamariam, a professor of public health at the University of Addis Ababa, are asked to step in. I just graduated on July, and uh, I'm currently enrolled in the faculty there. So you graduated from medical school and you were immediately given a professorship to teach public health to people, even though you haven't actually worked in the public health sector? Exactly. That's also the situation at Ethiopia's 13 new medical schools. There's a shortage of professors, so recent graduates are often asked to teach. Some say that could cause big problems down the road. One foreign doctor, who has worked in Ethiopia for more than 20 years but asked not to be identified, told me these new schools are producing a generation of doctors who don't know what they're doing, and they could do more harm than good. Dr. Tedros Adhanam, the former Minister of Health, agrees that physician quality is a concern, but he insists that Ethiopian schools will meet a minimum standard for medical education, and he says that's good enough for now. I don't think we will change this country by, uh, you know, waiting until we get something perfect to start something. It cannot be perfect. We have to start with what we have. Tedros says Ethiopia's ambitions are, quote, a bit crazy. But, he adds, the country has no choice but to think big. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto, Addis Ababa. Anders has produced a short video that gives an inside view of one of Ethiopia's medical schools. We've posted it at theworld.org. For many Americans, Christmas dinner means a big fat turkey on the table. The tradition of turkey on Christmas actually comes from Victorian England, but in London, that Christmas bird is straining the city's Victorian sewer system. The world's Andrea Crossan explains with a little help from Charles Dickens. Do you know the butchers in the next street with one? And they sold the prize turkey that was hanging there, not the little turkey, the big one. What, the one as big as me? Yes, my buck, the one as big as you. It's hanging there still. Is it? Very well, then, go and buy it. Ebenezer Scrooge bought the biggest turkey to send to Bob Cratchit's house. But in modern-day London, these Christmas turkeys have created a problem for the city's ancient plumbing. And that's why the city's sewer workers have done this. Sermon style. Sermon style. 
Thames Water, the utility responsible for the water supply and wastewater treatment in Greater London, has made a video with sewer workers doing a Gangnam-style dance in the sewers and on the streets of London. We put our sexy boots on and head below the ground. The historic brick sewers under London are our hood. Rob Smith is the chief flusher for Thames Water and sings in the sewerman video. He says the video is funny, but the message is serious. We were called out to 101 blockages on Christmas Day alone last year. The campaign is bin it, don't block it. So, in other words, throw it in the garbage, not down the drain. It's to get the message across to the general public about uh, flushing unwanted uh, fat down into the sewer system. Here are some of the statistics. Brits pour 15 million cups of roast turkey fat down the kitchen sink on Christmas Day enough to nearly fill an Olympic swimming pool. Food fat slips down sinks easily when warm, but sets into hard fatbergs when it cools down in the sewer. John Williams is with the Civil Engineering Department at the University of Portsmouth. He explains the process. We seem to get reactions occurring very similar to soap formation, where the fats react with calcium ions in the water and form uh, um, soap-like deposits. Williams says that there are some technological solutions to the problem, like adding certain enzymes that break down the fat, but he recommends the method used by the singing sewermen. The key thing, I think, is educating the public about the, the damage they cause, because the, the knock-on effect is not just the cost to scrape this out and dispose of it, is uh, there's public health and environmental issues, uh, sewers overflowing or backing up, um, release sewage into the the streets or into rivers, which has a has, has a, a wider impact. So to educate, the singing sewermen do their best Gangnam style. Rob Smith says the humiliation of singing and dancing is a small price to pay if it gets people thinking about what goes down the drain. I can just about live with singing, um, but uh, dancing has never, ever been my strong point. And uh, I must say, I haven't improved with age. For the world, I'm Andrea Crossan. If you want to see Chief Flusher Rob Smith singing and dancing, you do, at least a few seconds of it. The video's at theworld.org. You're listening to The World on PRI. That's Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. In Japan, obsessive collectors of comic books and anime videos are called otaku, and their devotion to their collections is extreme. They have, how should I say this, they have a really intense and enduring relationship with another world. A guided tour of Japan's otaku spaces, coming up on The World. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. It's been a dark several days in the news, and I'm afraid we're not going to lighten things up with these next two stories, but it's an important topic. We're talking about the epidemic of suicide in the U.S. military. Military suicides hit a new high this year, on average one per day. 
Now, we may think we know why members of the military are taking their lives, but research suggests it's more complicated than we think. Sarah Childress of our partner program Frontline has this report. The stereotype of the soldier who kills himself, a combat veteran plagued by post-traumatic stress, is a familiar one to Craig Bryan, the associate director of the National Center of Veteran Studies at the University of Utah. That is the storyline that we have created in our society because it, it's a simple storyline and it intuitively makes sense. The problem is that the data doesn't support the notion that it is as simple as combat leads directly to suicide risk. Last year, 53% of service members who killed themselves had no history of deployment, according to the Defense Department's most recent data. And about 85% of military members who took their lives had no direct combat history, meaning they may have been deployed but not seen action. Suicide is complex, so there's no simple explanation for why these service members are killing themselves in greater numbers. But experts who have studied the problem say that one factor may be the pressure from the back-to-back wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Life in the military these days is stressful, whether you're in a combat zone or not. We're increasingly asking our military personnel to do more with less. You know, we're reducing manpower, but maintaining the same level of missions and objectives. And even when you're here in the United States, even if you're not in a combat zone, you know, Things aren't necessarily easy. You have lots of demands, lots of responsibilities. Um, It can be quite stressful. Brian has nearly completed a three-year study of the root causes of suicide in the military. He says stress levels across the military began rising in 2004, as did the suicide rate, even among those who hadn't deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan. In recent years, actually, the number who suicide without ever having deployed has actually increased. Dr. Elspeth Ritchie was the top psychiatrist at the Army Surgeon General's office and is now the chief medical officer for the District of Columbia's mental health department. In her research, she's found that another risk factor often overlooked is the history of that soldier's unit, even if the soldier is a new recruit. If a unit has deployed time and time again, they might not have time to take care of new soldiers, to nurture the new soldiers, and to do the other bonding and strengthening events that they used to do, which may lead an individual soldier who's feeling more lost and left out to suicide. Kim Ruako, who directs suicide outreach at the nonprofit Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, or TAPS, said this is a sadly familiar story. She worked with the family of a young man in the Navy who took his life. He had injured his knee in basic training and still hadn't fully healed after multiple surgeries. His unit deployed without him. He went to roll call day after day in the morning, and then they stopped calling his name. And so he stopped going to roll call and then started to feel like he didn't belong at all, that he wasn't part of the unit, that he wasn't needed, that he wasn't valued, that there was no purpose for him, and that, you know, he was never going to heal. And he started to get very depressed. Then another setback. He got in trouble for skipping roll call. And his peers called him and said, you know, you're, you're really in trouble. And he, he killed himself before they could get over and charge him with anything. So he had been in the military for only two years, but he had struggled all the way from basic training. Ruako says military culture is highly resistant to mental health counseling because service members are trained to be tough, to handle their own problems. 
that can compound the stigma for those who haven't deployed to a war zone but need help. The military says it's trying to change that. It's held training sessions on suicide prevention for service members and introduced screening for depression at routine physicals. The Army also launched a $50 million study of mental health in 2009, the largest it has ever done, to better understand the risks and factors that lead to military suicides. It's due to be completed in 2014. For Frontline and the World, I'm Sarah Childress. You can read Sarah's expanded Frontline report on military suicides. It's at theworld.org. The fact that most military suicides involve those who've never deployed is more than a cold statistic to Peggy Scalorn. For her, it's a very personal tragedy. Peggy's son Cody was in the Air Force. It was only He was only a few months out of basic training last January when he took his own life. Cody was in some legal trouble. While on leave, he'd been volunteering at a local firehouse. Eager to go on a call, the 18-year-old phoned 911 with a fake emergency. Cody turned himself in, but he was facing prosecution. Peggy Scalorn didn't know about anything about her son's looming legal troubles. The first indication she got that anything was wrong was a phone call from Cody's commanding sergeant. At 8 o'clock in the morning on uh, Tuesday, uh, January the 3rd, we were informed that our son had never made it back to the base at Lackland Air Force Base. And uh, his sergeant was under the assumption that we knew uh, things that had happened prior to him being called back to base and um, was pretty threatening into, in regards to what was going to happen uh, to myself and my, my husband if we were harboring him. So I think they were under the impression that he was AWOL. Right. But you didn't know any of this. We had no information at that time. Mm -mm. So a a lot of moments of anxiety that uh, not to mention then tragedy after you learn the news about Cody. Absolutely. It was very shocking, very out of character uh, for Cody to, you know, not be in touch with his family. Uh, We had a very close relationship with him, uh, spoke to him, you know, three and four times a day. So I I knew something was very troubling wrong, but I, I would have never in a million years ever imagined that he would have taken his life. Prior to your own experience with Cody, did you consider, as many do, that military suicide is a result of combat stress? Yes, I did. Um, I'd never had uh, suicide ever affect me personally, so I think there's a a stigmatism that goes along hand-in-hand with military suicides and uh, combat. So, I mean, just how shocking was it then for you, you know, knowing that Cody hadn't uh, been in combat, that his deployment was very brief, that that he took his life? Um, I, th- I think my initial response was to get as much information as I possibly could in regards to what happened. You know, why did this happen? Um, he was a very happy person. He didn't suffer from any mental illnesses. Uh, There were no drugs or alcohol involved. And this was a a very coherent decision that he he had made. And I, I, as a mom, I needed to know why. I mean, it's hard to say, obviously, at this point, whether Cody had any post-traumatic stress disorder. But one of the things we just heard about PTSD is that the deep stigma uh, is the deep stigma that follows those soldiers who seek psychological help in the military. Do you think Cody may have been reluctant to seek help? Um, I, I do. Uh, the military obviously holds their men and women to uh, extremely high standards. 
and um, I, I think he feared for his career uh, in the military. We, we heard that the military is trying to address this problem. What, what do you want them to learn from Cody's story? I think that they need to better mentor these men and women, you know, that are, are coming in to do this duty to serve our country. And um, in Cody's situation, I think, you know, the ball was dropped as far as, you know, he was literally scared to death. You know, enough said that he took his life, you know, in, in fear of, you know, losing his hopes and dreams of, you know, being in the Air Force. And um, I, I think there were things that could have been done by his, his sergeant and the Air Force in general to make sure that, you know, he got back to that base safely. I mean, you said something really interesting there that he was scared to death. I mean, I, I was going to ask if you had to go back now and look at various signs. I mean, is that it? Uh, we we believe so, you know, especially after the phone call that I had, you know, with his sergeant being uh, threatening to me as a mother and, you know, telling telling you that your son was missing, but in the same sense accusing you of um, having some kind of involvement with protecting your child. Um, I can only imagine the phone conversation that his sergeant um, had with him, and he was the last one to speak to Cody alive about 15 minutes before the suicide actually took place. Peggy, are you hopeful that things will change within the military? And do you see yourself now, because of what you've been through as an activist in in, in this whole issue? Absolutely. Um, When my son died this past January, uh, I believe a part of myself and his father and sisters also died with him that day. And I want to make sure that no other family um, has to endure what we've had to go through this past year. And um, I didn't want his death to be in vain. And, uh, you know, I want to get the message out that, you know, these suicides are occurring regardless to deployment, regardless to PTSD. Peggy Scalorn, thank you very much for speaking with us and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. Here's a story about the latest video to go viral on the Internet, and it's a doozy. In it, you first see an eagle lazily soaring the sky above the Canadian city of Montreal. Then it swoops down and grabs a toddler playing in a park, carries it a few feet, and finally releases the infant. It's crazy. It was posted on YouTube Tuesday evening, got about 2 million hits, but by the next morning, doubts began to grow. Can this be real? Short answer, no. It's a creation of a group of students at Canada's National Animation and Design Center. Félix Marquis-Poulin is one of the students working on a class project for their degree in 3D animation and digital design. So, Félix, what was your assignment? We had to do a video uh, of a hoax. Uh, We had a mission to make it very viral, the more possible. We had uh, seven weeks to do it, and uh, we were four on on this project. And uh, that's pretty much it. So your assignment was to create a hoax, obviously with no criminal element in it. Technically speaking, was it hard to do? And what part of your video is fake and what parts are real? The baby and the eagle is fake. All the other things, the father and the baby at the, uh, at the end of the video is real. So we just create in 3D animation the eagle, then after the baby who got caught by the eagle, then after fall on the ground. Uh, so it sounds like something, if you've got the right software, anybody with a laptop could do. Uh, no, no, that's, that's oh, okay. kind of complicated. <laughs> yeah. Which is why you're in college and I'm not anymore. So it, it is pretty complicated to do. Yeah, very much. It's a pretty um, uh, long thing to do because we have to go uh, 
to a lot of steps. Like, uh, first of all, we have to modeling uh, every character. Like, there was the eagle and uh, the baby. Then after that, uh, we have to uh, texturing them, then lighting them, then uh, rigging them, like, uh, to animate them after this. Then the final compositing with the real images. Uh, it took us, like, 400, we think, hours wow. for four people. So if the assignment was to produce a hoax, you succeeded. Uh, two million hits in less than 24 hours. Did that surprise you? Uh, yes, a little bit. Uh, we uh, were expected, like, a little bit of views uh, in Montreal or around Quebec, but not that much, and uh, we're very happy to see that. So I gather this is not the first time that Canada's National Animation and Design Center have uh, ha- has fooled the public with wild videos like this. What else uh, have they produced? Uh, they produced uh, videos uh, with uh, penguins escaping uh, a zoo in Montreal and uh, wipeout. It was a wipeout quantum levitation. We can see uh, real-time uh, floating cars, little cars, like toys. So for the eagle that's picking up this child in the park uh, hoax, what grade did you get? We will get an A-plus because uh, if we were uh, about to have uh, 100,000 views, uh, we automatically have uh, uh, A-plus. So I think we achieved this. Well, you got two million hits, so you should just get your diploma tomorrow and just go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that'd be fun, but we still got a semester to do. So, Felix Marquis-Poulin. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you to you. You can see videos of those hoaxes at theworld.org. Now we enter the fantasy world of anime and manga comics for our Geo Quiz. We're in the Japanese capital, Tokyo, looking for one particular district in the city. This district is where many obsessive anime, manga, and video game fans gather. It's an area central to the Japanese gaming industry, and it's a mecca for anime and manga publishers. And when you're there, it's not uncommon to see fans and even shop owners dressed up as their favorite comic or video characters. This group of diehard fans have a name. They're called otaku. We'll learn much more about Japan's otaku community and reveal the answer to our quiz in just a bit. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. I'm looking at images right now from a slideshow we have posted at theworld.org. And i got to say, they're funny, insightful, and yes, slightly disturbing. The images are from a book called Otaku Spaces. They're photographs of diehard Japanese collectors and their stuff. One picture shows a Japanese prize fighter holding a hug pillow featuring his favorite female anime character. Here's one that uh, shows a sci-fi fan with his collection of not-so-futuristic calculators. And there are also several photos of collectors, men and women, with thousands and thousands of their manga comic books or anime DVDs. After looking at this book, the Hello Kitty franchise will make sense. Patrick Galbraith is the author of Otaku Spaces, and he spoke with all the collectors in his book. And first things first, I asked him to define otaku for us. Otaku is someone who's deeply interested in something, um, typically a media product like uh, comic books or animation or video games or something like that. And usually it also has a kind of material correlate, so they might be interested in a particular character in an animation, and then they might be collecting figurines. Or in some cases, they might dress up like that character. Dressing up like a favorite character is kind of what cosplay means. It's costume play. So kind of costume role play is cosplay. 
So I used to collect stamps. What would you say distinguishes uh, Japanese otaku collectors and, you know, people who collect stuff all over the world? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Otaku are people who are interested. They have, how should I say this? They have a really intense and enduring relationship with another world, a world of fiction that they kind of access through these sort of material products. So they're less interested in the material and more interested in kind of accessing that other world, a world of fiction, which is very real. Now, you say it's enduring. So how long has this been going on in Japan? I mean, what kind of, how many generations of Japanese are, are otaku? As far as we could tell, and this has been like an ongoing project where we've done sort of like an archaeological sort of dig in some ways to try to figure out where right. how far these layers go, people are really talking about it starting in the late 1960s into the 1970s where people became more and more interested in science fiction and especially science fiction animation and comic books. So basically, if you think about the 1970s in Japan, this is a time when we're having huge economic growth. We're having the kind of the spread of information consumer capitalism and really just this kind of push for young people to consume more, especially young men and women. So I would say that it goes back into at least the 1970s, probably before that. Now, I want to uh, touch on one uh, person you interviewed, a guy named Watanabe Ryosuke. Uh, He's a little different from uh, many of the otaku collectors uh, who kind of dabble in manga and anime. Uh, He's 36, and as you say, he collects items from the KKK, Japanese biker gangs and religious cults, Charles Manson, political extremists. And according to him, everyone in Japan collects. Is, is that correct? Everybody kind of collects something? Yeah, he had a pretty good point. He also, and then a few other people I interviewed, tried to kind of place it into context. And the way they were able to sort of talk about it was sort of regular collection as a child. So collecting Pokemon cards or collecting Bikuti Man stickers or collecting bottle caps or something. So basically, you're in this kind of dense media market, which is really kind of pushing these things to you, these media mix franchises. And then you consume across platforms in such an intense way that actually by age four, five, six, you're already really deeply involved in this. And Watanabe, actually, for him, uh, that was too normal. And by the time he reached middle school, he said, okay, I need to kind of collect other things, things that are actually valuable to me and to others, things that actually aren't being collected that will be lost over the course of time. In many ways, he's sort of a stereotypical 1980s otaku, uh, especially around this sort of, uh, this sort of uh, crisis when people were really worried about this sort of panic about what our, what our kids are doing. They're kind of behind closed doors collecting weird things. So in some ways, he's sort of like a return of the repressed in that way. Mm. So a sort of negative aspect of otaku, what might be considered a negative otaku image, sort of comes back into this more sort of pop culture, colorful, global anime manga sort of mix. I mean, as I read these interviews and looked at these photographs, I mean, uh, it's hard not to think of them as as pretty odd people in Japan. Uh, For sure, as they tell us in these interviews, some are successful in their respective professions. Others have day jobs. But uh, in in Japan, are these people viewed as geeky and unconventional? I think there's definitely that kind of connotation. The word otaku has never been a really good word. I mean, for a while in the 2000s, when we were actually doing this project, it was sort of this boom. So right about 2004, 5 until, you know, 6, 7, 8, there was this sort of international interest in otaku. There was this whole kind of discourse where we're all sort of otaku. We're all sort of interested in this fiction and fantasy, material worlds and what have you. But actually, if you talk to people in Japan, they still don't use the word in a necessarily positive way. Mm. And also this sort of like otaku as a good thing that's more tied to social, political and economic discourses in the Tokyo area. If you leave Tokyo, as we did, and go to other parts of Japan, 
you find that um, if you used a word otaku, it's still kind of like, whoa, hey, I mean, that's really not the word you want to use, right? We're maniacs or we're collectors or we're fans or something. They try to use a different term to sort of mitigate that stigma. I mean, there is a history here. It's a word with a lot of baggage that we tried to unpack in the book, but it's really transforming in each iteration, in each context. And so, I mean, we can't really say that otaku is negative or positive. I mean, it's really be it's a political word for sure. And every usage of it is actually a sort of a political act. Are these people hoarders in your opinion, or do they suggest something unique about Japan? Yeah, they're not really hoarders. Um, so I, I think in some aspects, we were trying to sort of go through the angle also of material culture, because we really wanted to kind of get to the material in this age of digital digitization and so on. We really wanted to kind of look at how people were surrounding themselves with the objects. But at the same time, they weren't really hoarders. Uh, Watanabe perhaps is an exception, but a lot of people actually were talking about how they weren't collectors and how collectors didn't take things out of the packages, how they put things into a shelf and they never touched it, they looked at it, but they, they were kind of cataloging it, what have you. And they were kind of um, emphatic that they actually were opening those packages, they were playing with the things, they were touching them, they were transforming them, they were putting, they were kind of like uh, playing games with them, transforming with the belts and stuff like that. So in some ways, they were much more active, they were much more sort of tactile, they needed to touch it, have it be a part of their lives. So it wasn't really about having the object, but about sort of interacting with the object to again access that sort of fantasy space that was so important to them. Fascinating stuff. Patrick Galbraith, author of Otaku Spaces, a revealing and at times, it's got to be said, voyeuristic book of portraits and interviews with Japan's extraordinary subculture of collectors known as otaku. Thanks very much for telling us about this. Thanks for having me. It was great. You can see our slideshow of Japanese collectors from Otaku Spaces, narrated by Patrick Galbraith at theworld.org. And by the way, according to the book, the best-known otaku area in the world is in Tokyo. It's a district known as Akihabara. So Akihabara, or Akiba for short, is the answer to our geo-quiz today. We'll close with music from a Japanese manga soundtrack from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. I tweet at Marco Werman. Catch up with me there. Until tomorrow, thanks for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.